We don't have, um, we don't have snacks tonight. I figured um, maybe some of y'all would want to go watch the election results, um, which are still, yeah, that's going on tonight. <laughs> Myself, I want to go watch the end of the Predators game. Um, but actually, my kids, you know, I, my wife and I realized, like, this is the last presidential election that my two boys will be home with us. Because in four years, they'll both be at college, which is crazy to think about. Um, you know, we're taking donations if you want to help us with that. Um, but, uh, you know, we have been doing, we've been doing a study of the parables this semester. And if you've been with us, you remember the main thing that I've been saying about the parables is they're surprising stories about the king and, the, and his kingdom. The idea that the gospel, the good news of the kingdom that Jesus announced is always a revelation of God's character. The king and the kingdom go together, okay? And tonight, we're going to look at a parable that has to do with the kingdom is here, but things are still frustrating because evil is here too. And sometimes theologians will talk about this tension between the already and the not yet. So with Jesus, Jesus comes and says that he is the fulfillment of what Israel was wanting and waiting for. A king who would redeem Israel, who would restore righteousness and beauty to the earth. And Jesus encourages people to believe that he is the one. He is the king, and if he's here, then the kingdom is here. So, for instance, he says very clearly in Luke 17, the kingdom of God, some translations say, is within you. But the you is plural. And that construction within you, where the you is plural, always in the New Testament means in your midst. A lot of people have taken that to be like, well, the kingdom is just God in your heart. That's not what Jesus is saying at all. Jesus is saying is, here I am in your midst, therefore the kingdom is here. And yet, this king dies on a cross like a criminal with a mocking sign saying, King of the Jews, with people looking at him in scorn and derision, saying, if God loved him, he would deliver him. But God doesn't love him. So there's this tension. And even throughout Jesus' ministry, as his disciples, once they begin to realize, no, this really is the king, they struggle with some of the things he does and some of the things he doesn't do. Even John the Baptist, who announced, you know, that Jesus is the king we've been waiting for. And yet, as he's in prison, waiting to have his head cut off by King Herod, he sends some of his disciples to Jesus to say, are you really the king? Because John didn't expect to be in prison and have his head cut off when the king came. And what does Jesus say? He says, go back to John and tell him that the sick are healed. Right? Yes, the signs of the messianic kingdom, even the beginning of the healing, the beginning of what C.S. Lewis called death working backwards, I love that phrase, is here. And yet, life is still frustrating. So how do we deal with that? It seems like a good parable for tonight, doesn't it? But, it, but it really, it's a good parable for every day. 
Because every day we live in this frustration. Life is frustrating. The book of Ecclesiastes says this. It starts out, uh, some translations say vanity, vanity, everything is vanity. Other translations say meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. But really the best rendering of the Hebrew at that point there, uh, the word hevel, sometimes translated meaningless, sometimes translated frustrating. The, the word hevel means vapor or breath. And it really refers to the idea that things don't really reach the goal that they're aiming for. That everything is frustrating. Ecclesiastes says everything is frustrating. Even though the king is here. And for the disciples, that's a hard thing to wrestle with. I think it's a hard thing for us to wrestle with. We tend to think, well, you know, either Jesus didn't really... You know, maybe he isn't who he said he is because there's so much evil in the world. Things seem to be so bad. How can God love us? How can God be here? All those questions get raised. Or I think sometimes Christians are like, you know, everything really is, you know, supposed to get worse and worse and worse. And then Jesus is going to come back like the Lone Ranger and just make everything great just at the last minute in the nick of time. You know, kind of the whole left behind thing, which I don't really subscribe to that being the biblical view. So how do we live in this tension? And I'm going to tell you why I don't believe in that view, actually, as we get through this passage. Uh, Matthew 13, I think, will help us understand how to live in this tension. I mean, should the followers of Jesus deal with frustration by calling down fire from heaven? (laughs) I I, I should tell you, in Luke chapter 9, there was this time when Jesus went and the Samaritans wouldn't believe in him. And basically, James and John saw this, said, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? Like the disciples just didn't get it and didn't want to live in the tension. But I don't think they're too unlike us. And so here we're going to see what Jesus teaches us about how to live in hope as those who know that things really are screwed up. That's it. Matthew chapter 13. We're going to start at verse 24. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked its way all through the dough. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. 
his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. And he answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, let him hear. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you. Sobering words, but words that have great wisdom for us as we live in this tension of the already, the not yet. Help us to understand these words, but more importantly, to trust you in the midst of the already, not yet. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as we come to this, this parable, it's interesting. He tells these two parables about, the, well, the, the, he tells, talks about the wheat and the tares. Then he tells two parables about the kingdom of God growing. And then the disciples ask for him to explain the one about the wheat and the tares. Because um, that's the one they don't like. <laughs> the one about the kingdom of God growing and getting bigger. Um, they don't ask for that explanation because that's the kind you like. And we don't really think that there's no problem when God tells us about stories where the kingdom of God gets bigger and bigger and everything gets better, right? Um, so the, I think the first thing to look at is Jesus is, is telling us here some important things about the world we live in. Namely, how did things get so messed up anyway? And even the reason I ask the question that way is because what Jesus gives us here is a story to explain where we are. You know, often I have students and their families who come as prospective students and want to meet with me. Maybe they're from like a Presbyterian church background or maybe they've heard of RUF. And I always get this question, tell me about what the religious climate at Belmont is like. Tell me like, is it really a Christian school? What does that mean? And I always say this, to tell you that, I have to tell you a story about where it's been and about like developments that have happened along the way. Because I can't just answer that question with, well, it's this, this, this. No, you've got to almost understand the story, and it's kind of this ever-shifting thing in a lot of ways. I don't know if you've realized that, but that's true. Some, there are some questions that the only way you can really try to give a good answer is to tell a story. And that's what Jesus does here, which shows something very important about the Christian understanding of the world which is things have not always been this way. He doesn't resort to saying, well, it's just the nature of the cruel and different universe. He doesn't say uh, evil is just an illusion. That would be more the Eastern religion view. He doesn't say, you know, everything is a matter of time plus chance plus matter, and it's just the way things are. That would be more the Western secular view. Instead, he says, things were good, and then they got messed up by an enemy. Things were good and beautiful, and something happened. That's the most basic thing you need to understand about the Christian understanding of the world. Things have not always been this way, which actually gives us some hope that things won't always be this way. The Christian understanding of what's wrong is a story. Something happened. Something happened. In some ways, this parable sums up the whole story of the Bible. 
God creates a beautiful world. And his enemy, Satan, comes trying to ruin it, trying to set up his parasite kingdom is the way C.S. Lewis refers to it. I love that. Because Satan doesn't create anything. He just tries to distort and corrupt what God has made. The whole story is about this, about the garden that's been spoiled and how God is committed to making things beautiful again. This is the Hebrew idea of shalom. It's often translated peace, but it's a much bigger concept than that. Shalom means the right rule of God, where everything else is right and whole and beautiful. And that's what the Jews were looking for, and that's what the Christians understood God to be committed to doing, bringing shalom, the healing of all things, all things being made right. The Christian explanation of evil is answered with a story. I myself find that the most compelling because I think everybody has a sense that things aren't the way they should be. And you see, of course, the Eastern religious view says things are the way they are. You just aren't looking at it right. You just don't see it right. You need to be enlightened and see that evil is really an illusion. You just need to see it differently. The Western secular view similarly says things just are this way. There's nothing wrong. As a matter of fact, you can't really call something good or evil. It just is. There's no moral overarching purpose to the universe. The Christian view, I think, answers what you know in your heart, which is this should not be this way. And it's really not just that the universe is indifferent. It's that there's a relational rupture. Something has happened terribly wrong that sent ripple effects into everything else. I love this quote by a guy. He's not a Christian guy, but he says this, that the maddening center of despair is the insistent instinct. Again, I can put it no other way of a broken contract. In the futile scream of the child, in the mute agony of the tortured animal, sounds the background noise of a horror after creation, after being torn loose from the logic and repose of nothingness. Something, oh, how helpless language can be, has gone hideously wrong. Reality should, could have been otherwise. The impotent fury, the guilt which master and surpass my identity, carry with them the working hypothesis, the working metaphor, if you will, of original sin. There's a relational rupture at the heart of everything. In other words, the Christian view is that the problem of evil is personal. We're not just the victims of impersonal forces or merely human errors and calculations. The problem is a relational rupture, a brokenness that ripples out into everything else. But while the Christian view, I believe, is more compelling than the Eastern view or the Western secular view, it doesn't answer all the questions. And that's important that you hear that as well. And you might think, well, wait, I thought you were a Christian pastor. You're saying that the Christian answer doesn't answer all the questions? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. We have to be humble. Christianity speaks about what's wrong, but it doesn't answer all the questions that you might have. It may not even be the kind of answer that you hope for. And I, I, I'm afraid there are far too many Christians that are willing to give you an answer that ties everything up in a nice, neat little package. 
The Reformed version of that, people that have a big view of the sovereignty of God, is to say, well, if God is sovereign, then things aren't really evil. You just need to have the right perspective and trust God. That's actually more akin to Islam than Christianity. Uh, Isaiah says in chapter 5 of Isaiah, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Don't let your theology conflate those two categories because that's a deeply unbiblical thing to do. I agree with John Frame. He's a professor at a seminary now down in Florida who says this. My own verdict is that we are unlikely to find complete answers to all of these questions. He's talking about the questions of the problem of evil. Uh, he says, I, I think we're unlikely to find complete answers to all these questions. Answers, that is, which are not subject to further questions. But I do think that we can provide answers in another sense. If what you want is encouragement to go on believing in the midst of suffering, Scripture provides that and provides it abundantly. So how are we to live? We have to be realistic. We live in a world that while it was created beautiful, it's been victimized by an enemy. And I believe only the Christian answer makes sense of why we feel angry that things are screwed up. Because people feel angry that things are screwed up because something has went wrong. And if you try to tell them, like the Western secular view or the Eastern view, that they just need to accept it the way it is, I don't think it's very satisfying. As a matter of fact, I think there are a lot of people that have tried to embrace those two answers and yet still long for healing and justice in this world, and I'm glad that they're inconsistent, actually. It makes the world a better place. Because the only real answer that gives you a basis for longing for things to be made right and longing to work for justice is the Christian idea. It really is. Steve Garber says this, bad books always lie. And they lie most of all about the human condition. This is something Walker Percy, who's a Catholic novelist, said. Walker Percy's insight about literature and life, that bad books always lie, is true beyond the world of novels. Echo echoing into every area of study, every area of human existence, bad economic visions always lie. And they lie most of all about the human condition. The same is true for politics and painting, for biology and sociology. All across the curriculum, it is the view of the human condition which sets the terms of the debate. What we believe about who we are, our origin, nature, and destiny affects everything else. And if you are here at a Christian university, I hope you'll take that to heart. What does it mean to be human? Christianity speaks about that and it affects everything. Do we live in a world where things have went wrong? Or do we live in a world where we just have to accept what is? So, things are frustrating. And you see in this parable that the workers, presumably the disciples, the people in the kingdom, want to go out and get rid of the weeds. And the master says, no, you can't do that. So it's frustrating. Yet, the very next two stories say that the kingdom is growing at the same time. And isn't it interesting that you have the parable about you know, the wheat and the tares, and then you have the parable about the mustard seed and about the, the dough and the yeast, and then you get the explanation. So Matthew 
sticks these together right there, and it seems that Jesus told them together. And you need both of them to get a full picture of where we are. Jesus doesn't just say, things are frustrating, just deal with it. And it won't be made right until the end of time. He follows that story with a story about the kingdom that says it's like the mustard seed, which is this tiny little seed that when you plant it, it grows into being the biggest plant. That's what the kingdom is like. The kingdom is small, but then it grows and it keeps growing. The kingdom is like yeast, which grows and affects everything. So it's this picture of the kingdom that's on this upward trajectory. At the same time that the wheat and the tares are growing side by side. Now, this is one of the reasons that I don't think the whole left-behind theology makes a lot of sense. Because that theology says that things get worse and worse and worse and worse, and then Jesus comes back and everything is perfect. That's not the picture. No, the picture is things are growing. The kingdom is growing. Things are not getting worse and worse and worse. The kingdom is growing, and Jesus says the gates of hell won't stand against it. And in case you didn't know, gates are defensive weapon. You don't attack anybody with a gate. It's the idea the kingdom of God is pushing back against the parasite kingdom of Satan, and it's making real advances. Yet, at the same time, the wheat and the tares are growing up together. This, I think, fits better what people call amillennialism, if you care about those sorts of things. The idea that the, that the good and evil are both... In a, in a sense, growing, and growing more intense. And that's what it's like to live in this world. Now, like I said, it's interesting the disciples want an explanation for the story about the wheat and tares. They're really happy, probably, with the story about the kingdom growing because they've signed on at the beginning of this movement, right? They've been there since the beginning when it was the little tiny seed and when it was just the beginning of yeast, and they're excited to hear that it's going to keep growing and become the biggest thing around. Awesome. That sounds great, but Jesus, we're troubled by this other story about wheat and tares and about how, you know, the wheat and tares grow up side by side and we're not allowed to harvest them. We don't like that story. Could you explain that story? And isn't that the way it always is? We want Jesus to explain the stories, the hard stories. And I'm not saying it's inappropriate to do that, but I think it's, it's fascinating because I think in so many ways we love the stories where people win, particularly if the people are us. And we think God has to explain himself if we don't win. And I think it's fascinating. You know, we're, we're always asking for an explanation from God for why things go poorly. We never ask for an explanation for why have I been so blessed, which just shows a lot about us and about what we think we deserve, doesn't it? Um, I also think it's why so much Christian art is lame and superficial, because <laughs> it doesn't really want to deal with the first story. It loves the story about how Christians win, but it doesn't like the story about the wheat and the tares and the tension and the frustration, right? So here, here's what I think is, is what we need to take away from, from these two stories, the way they come together, is we have to live in the already not yet tension because good and evil grow up together. And now here's something you need to know about the plants that Jesus is talking about. The wheat and the tares are identical until the plants mature and are ready to be harvested. You can't distinguish between the, the shoots as they're growing. So Jesus is, is it's a very apt picture. Everybody that he's telling the story to understands these two plants 
You can't, you can't get out. If you try to pull out the weeds, you will inevitably destroy some of the good wheat. You have to wait until harvest time, and then the wheat will be obvious that it's wheat, and then you can pull out the weeds at that point. And, and Jesus is saying, that's what the kingdom's like. And it's not harvesting time yet. It's interesting, you know, regularly the Bible connects waiting, and, the, and, and believers are often wanting the end to come soon. And you know, like what Peter says is, God, God is patient, not wanting any to perish. You know, you know that verse where he talks about that? It's talking, it's, he's really speaking there to believers who are wondering in the midst of persecution, why hasn't Jesus come back again and made all things better? And God says, the reason is because he's patient, not wanting any to perish. So there's something about the patience of God that is here. Even in this parable about judgment, that there will be an accounting one day, there's also this regular theme that comes out again and again that God is patient. Don't take it for granted, but God is patient. Now, here's what, here's what we need to do, putting these two together. I think that Christians should never be optimistic or pessimistic. Neither one of those are really Christian ways to be. I love this uh, quote by uh, Oppenheimer. He's one of the guys that helped build the nuclear bomb, you know. But I've always loved this. He says, the optimist thinks that this is the best of all possible worlds. The pessimist fears it is true. The optimist believes that this is the best of all possible worlds. The pessimist fears that this is true. But Christians should be neither of those because we don't believe this is the best of all possible worlds, do we? We believe that this world right now is not the way it should be. And we don't believe, like the pessimists, that this is the best we're ever going to get. We believe that God is at work in his world. Now, there's a guy, Bill Edgar. He's a um, professor at Westminster Seminary, but he also has his PhD in musicology. Um, and, and I love this essay he has on how do, you, how do you represent evil in art if you're a Christian? You ever wondered that? Because a lot of what's wrong with quote-unquote Christian art is it's too optimistic. Uh, you know, it's like the uh, Thomas Kincaid paintings, you know, where you see the creation and then there's light glowing everywhere, but there's never anything broken. It's not really a true picture of the world. Remember, bad books lie, and they lie most of all about the human condition. That's true of bad art. Listen to what Edgar says. He says, artists often fall into one of two extremes. He's talking particularly about Christian artists. Optimism and pessimism. The optimists arise at a happy ending, so to speak, without honestly passing through the valley of the shadow of death. A good deal of music today is optimistic in that it tells of joy and peace without reckoning with evil. The, pessimistic is, the pessimist is realistic about evil but has little or no hope. The element of redemption is the missing dimension. In contrast, the biblical worldview is neither optimistic nor pessimistic. Unlike optimism, the biblical worldview tells us to look evil in the eye. It is real. But unlike pessimism, the Bible proclaims genuine hope because Christ has inaugurated a great reversal of the fall. Music that voices this philosophy will be both realistic about the darkness and unashamed of the light. And few people have as powerfully stood with integrity, neither yielding to optimism nor pessimism as African Americans. 
forged in the clandestine, clandestine church, hammered out on the anvil of oppression and immense suffering, spirituals, gospel music, the blues, jazz, ragtime. These are so many related styles that express the central message of deep sorrow and deep joy. The theme of sorrow and joy in black music is a subject unto itself. Being real in art is only possible when we can be real with God. I think that's true. I have a great love for older gospel music and the blues. And there's, there is something about the joy that's not just giddy, that, that doesn't avoid brokenness and sorrow. The hope in the midst of realistic brokenness is really powerful. So that's where we are. How then should we live? How then should we live? First is we have to be realistic in our expectations. So we are called to work for justice. But as this parable teaches us to expect, all of our solutions are frustrating and frustrated and seem to lead to other problems. That's one of the central themes of the book of Ecclesiastes. Every solution, even good solutions, even the best solutions you can come up with lead to other problems. But that doesn't mean you should stop working and stop longing and stop loving. And that's true even in Christian community or in church. That you need to be realistic about what it's like to be part of a Christian community, to be part of a church, to work for justice in the world. And all of these things, the wheat and the tares, are growing up side by side. Life is frustrating. And this parable, I think, provides a helpful antidote to unrealistic expectations about a utopia, either inside or outside of the church. The other thing it teaches us is that separation is not an option. Like, you can't separate yourself from the tares. The wheat is intertwined with the weeds. You can't even tell them apart sometimes. And, and a couple things you need to understand from this. Evil, in the Christian view, is not just out there. It's very, deeply unbiblical for pastors or other Christians to speak in sort of an us-versus-them way. Like, all of us in here are the good people, and all the people out there are the bad people. Because the Bible teaches, for instance, in Romans chapter 7, that evil is in our hearts. It's not just out there. Uh, Jesus says, you know, it's not just, you know, clean the outside of the cup. You know, it's out of the heart flow all the issues of life. And Romans 7 says your heart is still torn. Paul says, as a Christian, he says, sometimes I don't do what I want to do. And what I don't want to do, that's what I do. If you've ever felt frustrated with that, well, that's good. One of my spiritual heroes, Robert Murray McShane, said, well, that a true Christian is known as much by their warfare as they are by their peace. And a lot of Christians think, well, if I was really a Christian, I wouldn't have this inner turmoil. Really? No. Romans 7 says that you'd be filled with inner turmoil. If you have no inner turmoil, I'm not sure you are a Christian. Seriously. So the wheat and the tares go up side by side. That means... Evil is in your heart. It's not just out there. That means you can't separate yourself from it. And Christianity should never be about creating this little enclave where we remain unspoiled by the world. I love um, St. Jerome. St. Jerome's a very important figure in the history of the church. He was a monk who lived in the 5th century. He's the guy who translated the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament into Latin, which became the official translation of the church for a 1,000 years. St. Jerome said that he went out into the desert to escape the pleasures of the flesh. 
You know what he said he found when he got out there? He said he found himself surrounded by visions of naked dancing women. I love that a monk said that. <laughs> I went out into the desert to escape the temptations and the pleasures of the flesh, and I found myself surrounded by visions of naked dancing women. Because the problem wasn't around him. The problem was in his heart. Right? Jesus as well prayed, John 17, the very last recorded prayer of Jesus, what we call the high priestly prayer. He prayed, Father, I pray that those who follow me, my disciples, will be in the world, but not of it. He doesn't say, I pray that they'd be able to remove themselves from the world so that they can stay holy and pure. Actually, there's this really ironic thing that happens. When you separate yourself from the world, you tend not to get the perspective of the world, and you tend to be very naive about the evil that's in your heart because you don't have people speaking into your life, just other people that are sort of thinking just like you. It's very fascinating how that tends to happen. Separation is not what Christians should be about. But the biggest problem with separation is that we are usurping God's role and his work and saying we are the ones who are going to judge now. When you separate yourself and you say, you know, we're the good people, you're the bad people, in, in essence, you're taking something that God says is res reserved for judgment day when the wheat and the tares will be separated, and you're saying, no, I'm going to do it now. So, we shouldn't do that. Separation is not an option. Have to be realistic, but we must live with hope. Because it's not just a story here about the wheat and the tares. It's also a story about the kingdom growing. God will judge one day, right? And we are to long for that day. I know that's a hard thing for a lot of people to think the idea of God's judgment. I think it's one of the biggest barriers to people wanting to follow Jesus. I think it's ironic because the people in Jesus' day it was one of the things that they really looked to the most. In other words, oppressed people who live with Roman occupation wouldn't take Christianity seriously if God didn't say, I'm going to deal with evil oppressors one day. It tends to be kind of majority culture, upper middle class people that really hate the idea of God's judgment. Most people in the history of the world, and certainly the people the Bible was written to, rejoiced that God was going to make things right and that that involved judgment one day. And so it's interesting how even our objections to Christianity are very much connected to our culture and to our presuppositions. So be careful. Before you reject Christianity, what is your objection based on? But then we need, I think, finally to look to Jesus as the one who grieves more about the brokenness of his beautiful creation than we ever will. What do you think it was like for Jesus to walk around 30 years seeing all the ways his beautiful creation had been marred? And I think one of the challenges for us is we think, we look around at the broken world and we think God must not care. Don't ever think that. Jesus cared and Jesus, Jesus understood more than you ever will the beauty that he created. And he cared enough to die. And get this, to die for the ones 
who planted the weeds. Because here's the thing. You may think, well, I'm part of the kingdom. I'm the good people. Yeah, you plant weeds all the time. You plant weeds in your relationships. You plant weeds that lead to brokenness in this world. You choose selfishness in your own kingdom over the kingdom of God, and so do I. You use your time, your talent, your money for things other than God's kingdom, and Jesus knows more than you do the effects of that. You don't even know the effects of all the brokenness that you've contributed in the world. But here's the thing. Jesus does, and Jesus still died for the people that planted the weeds. The people who are shining like the kingdom, the sun in the kingdom, are the people that Jesus takes their punishment in their place and gives him credit for, for his life, his perfect life. Again, what must it have been like for Jesus to walk through this ruined creation and look at the brokenness of those made in his image and then for him to go to his death and as he hangs on a cross, say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus is the only one who was worthy to be called the weed who became like a weed and was cut up and burned. That's what the cross is about. So often I think we struggle with patience because we think God doesn't care or doesn't know. We think, how can he sit idly by with all the evil in the world, but Jesus did not sit idly by. And while I can't explain to you why he hasn't come and made all things right yet, I know that he knows and he cares. And I know ultimately we can trust a God with wounds. Edward Shalito wrote this poem after World War I. He'd been himself in the trenches, in the trench war. I love these lines. He says, The other gods were strong, but thou was weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. Christianity not only offers, I believe, a compelling explanation of the why things are broken, but it also gives you supreme confidence that things will be made right one day because Jesus didn't suffer for nothing. He didn't come just to have his heart touched by the brokenness. He came to be wounded so that death would start working backwards. So I don't know what's going to happen tonight with the election. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. But I know that Jesus doesn't just sit idly by. He cares. And he's committed to making all things right one day. And you want to join him in that? What it means to be a Christian, what it means to grow as a Christian, is to grow in your brokenness over the things that break God's heart and your joy in the things that God rejoices in. Let's pray together.